Welcome once again to the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Today we are continuing the second half of the Mark Chiarello interview. Let's continue. You know, since we're on this subject, one other thing. When we were talking to Tim Sale and with Shakin, they both pretty much pronounced Dave Johnson as the best cover artist currently working and has been for a long time. Yeah. What do you think of that? Dave, man, Dave's sensibilities and mine are really very similar. We both like real graphic images. Yeah. And those, you know, Dave's is such a hardcore designer. I mean, he can draw incredibly well. I wish I could draw like Dave Johnson can draw, but he just gets imagery. He gets picture making. It's right. like, they're like posters, you know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. They are, yeah, but they work so well on covers. You know, they're not, because I think covers a lot of times have, have become sort of just a, you know, they don't tell a story. They don't really bring you in necessarily. His covers always bring you in, whatever he's doing. Yeah, yeah. I went down, but, you know, again, when I was running the, the variant covers, I, you know, I've told Dave all the time, you know, because he's a pal and he's a real pro. He's always on time. And But I knew I was going to get back a piece and just go, holy shit, look what this guy did. But I was lucky. I, you know, I did that with Frank Cho, and I did that with Josh Middleton, who's astounding. Oh yeah, you know Ryan Sook. Uh, Ryan Sook's just crazy. The guy's just so talented. You know, it was a pleasure to do that job. And the last thing on covers, would and this this actually relates to you, is that run that you did with Tim Sale of Detective Comics in 2003 to 2004, which yeah. I think along with Johnson's detective covers were just as good as Batman covers could possibly be. But those those are brilliant that Tim did with you. And I, I'd like to know what the collaboration process was between the two of you. I think Timmy was really at the top of his game when he was doing those. He was so... Look, comic, you know, comic artists want to draw the great classic characters, the great villains, right? You don't want to do like... You know, you want to do, you know, Tim would call me, okay, so who's this month? And I'd say, oh, it's the Joker. And he'd be cool. You know, he'd be really jazzed by it. And it wasn't, you know, oh, yeah, Batman's fighting Banana Man this month. And, you know, because then you're like, oh, shit, I have to figure out. I don't want to draw that, you know. But that run had so many great villains in it that Timmy just teed off on that stuff. And he was nice enough to let me color them. And they were really fun. It was a night. It was a really fun. It was kind of a triangle. It was, you know, the editor to the artist to the colorist. He, he, he did quite a few, as I recall. Yeah, I think uh, during that that run, and you did almost all of them with him. I think you did seventeen in total, and maybe more. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I re- you know, I really distinctly remember some of them being really fun. And, you know, Timmy's such a great. I shouldn't call him Timmy. It makes <laughs> it makes it sound like he's six years old. Tim's such a great visualist, you know. Um, his stuff is so idiosyncratic. It's a little like Paul Pope, where you're sort of like, this guy shouldn't be drawing comics. He's, you know, it's it's not John Buscema. It's not John Romita. It's not mainstream comics. It's their own vision. And fortunately, modern comics allow artists to do that. But I just love Tim's view of the world. Again, it's very uh, influenced by movies, film noir, and poster artists from 30s you know often i would call these guys and especially tim and adam hughes and dave johnson and i would never really talk about the job i would never say well what do you think you'll do on this cover i would talk about you know we would talk about norman rockwell or 
geez, did you see that show on Netflix? It was really well shot or, or, you know, talk about famous American illustrators. And then they'd get off the phone and they, you just had a great conversation and you were happy to be an artist, a working artist. So they just kind of do their best work, I think. I wasn't tricking them. I certainly wasn't tricking them into doing their best work. I just like talking with these guys about stuff I'm interested in and stuff they're interested in. And then you would get the best work. Yeah. Ah, uh, that's, that's great. There's, I want to get to solo super quickly because you're giving me all these, bringing up hope and, and, and different things makes me want to talk about it. I just want to quickly ask you about the guide to coloring and lettering comics with Todd Klein. Uh, what was the origin of that project? Watson Gunsell, the publisher, did a series of books with DC, the DC Guide to Creative. DC Guide to Penciling, DC Guide to Writing, DC Guide to Inking. And they were they had heavy hitters doing them. I mean, Denny O'Neill wrote the one on writing, and Klaus Jansen did the one on penciling and inking. And they asked me to do the one on coloring. And I was like, oh, man, that's going to be a lot of I said, you know, I said to myself, that's going to be a lot of work. I really don't want to do that. But I don't want anybody else to do it. So I accepted it. And I think for years it was pretty highly regarded as sort of like the Bible of how to color comic books. Right. Has coloring changed to a degree that, that uh, does it still apply? The technical side of coloring has changed. I mean, you know, because Photoshop comes out with a new version every year and a half, whatever it is. But the first half of that book is about the aesthetics of color and all that stuff, all that stuff doesn't change. It's, you know, it's kind of how to have good taste, how not to have, how not to be all over the place with what you're putting on the page. You know, there was a, when comics first got into computer coloring, it was really gimmicky right off the bat. You had a lot of lens flares everywhere. You had people using way too much color and yeah. different colors. And well, I, I have a million colors available to me. I'm going to use all one million of them. That ain't what it's about, you know. And you see some great colors like Laura Martin and, you know, all these Dave Stewart, Trish Mulvin, all these great, great colorists. They're not using all those colors, they're just using the computer like an art tool. It's just like a set of oil paints or it's a set of watercolors or good markers. It's what you, it's the talent you bring to the table, not the tools that you have at your at your disposal. Mm-hmm. So going now to New Frontier, because chronologically that's where we are, 2004, I want to focus on what your contribution was to the book as an editor. Like, did you work with him in terms of the whole package, the cover? The, it's so well designed from the first page to the last page, as is Solo. I mean, it's these are not just comics that have a cover that's not related to the next page and the next. It's a whole. And that's so clear in, in New Frontiers. Uh, so I want to hear not just what Darwin does, but what did you do to that project? You know, look, I'd love to take credit for the look of New Frontier. You know, I'm a designer as well as an art director and an artist. And if you look at Solo, that's completely me. From the logo to the way it's designed, everything about that. And Wednesday Comics is completely me. I did the whole thing from a design standpoint. And uh, and Batman Black and White. But Darwin, he did everything on that book. You know, I would talk to him literally every day about where the story was going and send art, send pages in. But that's Darwin Cook's aesthetic. I'd love to steal some credit, but, you know, Darwin just, he did the whole thing from the covers to the inside design to obviously the art and the lighting. It was all, it was all Darwin. I would just, it goes back to Archie. Archie just said, facilitate these guys, make it easy for them to do their job, make it easy for them to sit down and 
write or draw. That's what I did with, with Darwin. I just let him. So when it. those pages and the concepts were coming in, was everybody in the DC offices just in awe of it? Because it's it's just you know an amazing piece of work. Yeah, I mean Darwin's a little. This stuff is a little polarizing because so many people revere it, but you had a few people who thought, well, that's just cartoony. Oh, he's just doing, he's just doing uh, Bruce Timm. He was influenced by Bruce Timm, also influenced by Kirby and Toth. But Darwin was Darwin. He, you know, I never liked when people said, gee, that's just, that's just too simple. That's just, you know, that's just cartooning. That's, that's such a stupid thing to say. It's such an ill-informed thing to say. Like when people look at Toth stuff, a lot of people will say, oh, it's too simple. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you try to do simple. Hey, it's easy to draw a shoulder and draw 40 lines for that shoulder. Try to do the one right line for that shoulder. Right. There you go. That's what's difficult. Oh, that's, well, that's, that's great to know. And, and just says even more about Darwin that, that that's so much just a coming completely from his, his head. Let's move to Solo. Solo, which was done between 2004 and 2006, which you said was one of your babies in terms of design and everything. Was it conceived by you to be a limited series of 12 or did you just see, want to see how far it would run? I wanted to see how far it would go, and sales were good on it, but they weren't great on it. But it was more of like a, a real hardcore fan darling, you know. It, so oh yeah. Look back on it, and with great fondness, that I was just, you know, I was just being selfish. I just wanted to work with these artists, and I wanted to see. I remember though when Archie worked when Archie Goodwin worked for DC. I remember going in his office and saying, "I have this idea. Look, I love superheroes, but I'm a little tired of." Nobody does Western comics anymore. Nobody does romance comics anymore. Could we do a book that's just all, rom- you know, like all romance comics or prison break stories, you know? And he's like, well, the problem with that is if you do one issue that's all Westerns, then the next issue is prison stories. You get no momentum because it's a different, it's a completely different flavor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I was like, well, maybe if the hook is the, is the artist, then you're going to walk into a comic shop and see, oh, Tim Sale, I like his stuff. So you're going to pick it up. And you'll be tricked into reading, you know, all the different genres that, that I asked the guys to do, the guys and gals to do. And, it, it, you know, I was just looking at the collection of that of the solo stuff the other day, and, man, there was some cool stuff in there. I was really oh, yeah. lucky. There was some really cool stuff in there. Well, before we get to the, the ones that did get made, I want to just ask about, the ones that didn't in terms of were there artists that you planned on having or that you talked to about it and it didn't happen because you ran out of time or because they couldn't do it. I know Kaluta said something on our Facebook group about how he had so wanted to do that and then it didn't happen. Yeah. I remember mentioning it to Kaluta. I don't know that, <laughs> I don't know that it was ever, I was ever actually asked him officially, but, I love my stuff, so I would have been cool. Walt Simonson was going to do one, and he wanted to interconnect all the stories. And I was like, cool, yeah, great. And I know he's having deadline problems on some other project he was trying to wrap up. So Solo got canceled before he got a chance to do much more than maybe a couple character designs. But his idea was he wanted each story to be different, different characters and different times through history. And the, the connecting tissue was a coin that each character had the same coin throughout history. And he eventually did it as once Solo was canceled. He did it as a graphic novel called The Judas Coin. That was going to be a solo project. 
That was the initial solo, yeah, that he never got around to doing. I oh. forget why he, he couldn't do the solo, but he had to step off. And then, like, maybe two years later, he pitched it as a graphic novel. And I'm glad he did because it's a really beautiful piece. Yeah, I like it. I read that. It, oh, it yeah. seemed like some of the people who went and eventually did Wednesday Comics would have been, I mean, Kelly Baker is the most obvious one to me, but there were people like that that just cried out that they should have been on, uh, gotten to do a solo issue. Yeah, I got to use a lot of those people. You're right. You got to use a lot of those people on Wednesday Comics. But I mean, Jim Lee started drawing an issue of solo. I think he did three pages and. He is officially the busiest guy on the planet, so he never proceeded with it. I really like Howard Porter's work, and he showed me his sketchbooks one time, and they were just like, his comic stuff is great, but his sketchbooks are just like from another world. They said, oh, right. man, you should do this stuff. And then it was canceled. And Sikavich was going to do one, and George Pratt was going to do one, but the book was canceled. Ah, oh, those both would have been, been great. Well... Let's talk about the ones that actually did get published. Did you start with Tim Sale just because he finished first, or was there a strategy to how you were going to do these in order? Well, obviously, with you know, when you kick off a project, you want to get a real popular, you want to get a real popular creator on it. And Timmy was very popular at that time. He was just coming off, I guess, the stuff he did with Loeb for for us for. I have to stop saying us for DC Comics, Dark Victory. So I knew he had a real following. And he's he's really an artist's artist. He really, I got my cake and eat it too. I got to hire an artist I really loved and respected their work, but also somebody who was really popular. Right. And you actually, you actually colored one of those stories on that first issue, right? Did you do Prom Night? Did I do Prom Night? Which one's Prom Night? I forget which one that is. I know I colored the the film noir one, the Azarello one, the almost black and white one. Oh, did you do that one? Yeah, which I think is Tim's best work to date. I think that's just astounding. I know I colored the last story, which is about his mom and dad, which was monochromatic, like green and tan. Yeah, it's a nice one. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the one? Isn't that where he's going off to the prom? Maybe that's, but that, cause that's the one I love is, is that he's in the driveway. He's leave, he's walking away and his mom, there's a picture of his mom and dad looking, but you know, you're right. You're, you're I think you're right. Yeah. I know it's about, they mentioned, they talk about a Frank Sinatra song a lot in that, in that story. So that's, yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's prom night. It's, it's my favorite page from that, that issue is that one as good as the noir one is. It's just, that one's personal to, to me. I just love it. Really nice. And I actually, I shouldn't say this, but I actually wrote one of them also. Yeah. I shouldn't say that though. Oh, uh, really? Well, because it's uh, not on the official credit, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Tim had, uh, like a year earlier, Tim had done, he was dating a girl and they, and they went like on vacation to the beach and he drew this like three page story of him and her walking on the beach. And it was really beautifully, beautifully drawn and painted, but it had no dialogue at all. And I, as, you know, he sent me the, he sent me scans of the pages because I love his art and he wanted to share it. And I said, oh, this is gorgeous. It just as a joke. I put dialogue in there, like, and there, you know, I made it where they're having a fight on the beach and he's all pissed off because he's got to go back and draw, you know, Spider-Man, red, white, and blue or whatever that book was and the deadlines and all that stuff. You know, it was just a gag. And then when a year or two later, when he did solo, I said, you know, he said, let's print that artwork. I'll draw a few more pages to it. I'll, I'll fill it out a little, but I want you to dialogue it for real. 
So I wrote the dialogue that's in that story, which had nothing to do with the images, really. I just made up this story about a guy who has to kill his girlfriend for that. Mm-hmm. Wow. I shouldn't have said that because Tim's going to be real mad at me that I said that. <laughs> <laughs> so the second issue, you went with somebody that I think at the time wouldn't have necessarily been instinctively another big seller, which was Richard Corbin, primarily known for the his earlier magazine work. What was your decision to, to go with him next? And also, what did you think of that issue? It was an absolutely fascist, mercenary decision. I just, I'm a really big Richard Corbin fan. I mean, from back in the days when there was such a thing as underground comics and he would draw these incredibly bizarre, gorgeous comic books. I had asked him to draw Batman Black and White, eight pager. I think it was in the first issue. I think it was. And we became kind of friendly and I asked him to do the solo. And one of the great, great artists, I really loved what he ended up doing for that book. Mm-hmm. And he wrote all those stories. I think he wrote like maybe, he certainly wrote about 90% of them. I think there was, oh no, John Equity wrote the Spectre story, I think. Ah. Uh, yeah, let's, let's talk about that for a second because it's interesting to me. One, Dave Stewart colored it and it's, I mean, it shows. It's, it's great. But also, wasn't, wasn't Corbin at this point in a real religious phase of his life? I don't know if that's true. I honestly don't know. I, he's a real interesting guy, but I don't, I don't know that he is ever. I'm not sure. Honestly, I'm not sure. I had read that, which was interesting because the Spectre is a, is a tricky character in, in that context. But I thought his visual of the Spectre was really original. I had not seen the all-encompassing use of white the way that it was used in that story. I thought it was really fun. Yeah, yeah, big time, really cool. And the third issue is Paul Pope, one of the best, I think that's one of the best issues of the whole series for me. I, I love that. Yeah. And if you don't, if you don't fully appreciate Jack Kirby, Paul Pope surely does because that OMAC recreation is, is just so much fun. Yeah. Another guy who just, who just really has a real respect for the history of comics and brings his incredibly unique take to that world. I think I may have colored a couple of those stories, as I recall. Oh, cool. And the next was uh, Chaykin. What's your take on, on Howard? I love Howard. Howard's the greatest. I really like that last story where he talks about how, as a kid, he was, he was too scared to read horror comic books. I, I love the autobiographical nature of that story. That's an aspect I really like about this series when any of them actually bring that in. And we'll get to Darwin Cook's beautiful story in terms of that next, where he does that with World's Window, which I assume yeah. is somewhat autobiographical. It, it, um, it absolutely is, yeah. Well, it's like the, you know, one of the later issues with Sergio Arizona, and on one of the pages, like maybe page two, he's talking on the phone to his editor, and He's making all excuses up why he's late drawing his issue of Solo. And the editor was me, so he, he, literally, he actually said, oh, yes, Mark, I've already drawn half the story or whatever. But I got the page again, and I'm like, holy shit, Susan Arizona is talking about me, like specifically talking about me and mentioning Mark, mentioning me in the comic book. That's cool. Yeah, that's also one of my favorite issues because it's so autobiographical. It's like half autobiography and half taking me back to plop. And it's it's just so much fun 
I think that issue really works well. The only thing I'd say about the Chaikin one was it's not just that last story, but the one before that is so EC focused too, because it reads just like one of the preachies that Wally Wood did. Yeah. You know, and so it yeah. seems like it was. So that was that leads me to a question: did, Who decided the order of the stories, and and that was that you, or or did the artist say, "Here they are, and here's how I want them to be told"? It was mostly me figuring that out. Some artists would say, "Gee, I'd really like it to go in this order," and if I agreed, I certainly would say, "Yeah, that sounds cool." But I did it. I, I you know. I had to do something editorially, <laughs> editorially on it. So, uh, you know, I would say, hey, I think this is a good flow because you have a Western next to a superhero next to a romance. I would always plot it out like I would always do a book map with little thumbnails of each page. So I would, you know, I'd know the flow of how the book went. So you don't have two really long stories next to each other or or two Westerns next to each other. But there was, it was nice that there were a lot of Westerns in the series altogether. The next one, issue six, with uh, Jordy Burnett, has that stalking horse story, again, with Dave Stewart. And it's one of the things when I was going through it, re-looking at this, was, boy, those Stewart-colored ones just jump out at you. Like, you recognize, oh, I bet that's one of his, too, because you just, it's just, there's something that just pops out of the page with his colors. Yeah, um, and Dave's one of the few guys I'm real jealous of because he's a better colorist than I am, and that's probably why I stopped doing coloring because he's just too good. But I'm, no, <laughs> and he's the nicest guy. You know, he's like really laid back and stuff. So he's man, what a talent! The stuff he's doing with the Douglas Mignola, and you know, yeah, those solo stories. And then let's see, Michael Allred. That issue just seemed like he was so happy to be playing in superhero land and and i don't think it's just because he's the first one that that's all he did in this was i mean it seemed like it was every story was now i'm going to do kirby fourth world and now i'm going to do uh teen titans and i'm going to do a pinup of metal men it was he embraced that aspect of it like no no one had before him in terms of the series you know the rule was the rule i made up was okay it's short stories you can do whatever genre you want you can write whatever you want relatively. But the only rule is you have to do at least one superhero story, one DC superhero story. So you get all these you get all these artists who wanted to do different genres, you know, science fiction and they and they sort of begrudgingly would do the superhero, but all red just loved superheroes. Like you said, he did all he did all those characters, he did all the superhero stories he wanted to do. Yeah, it seems he really likes the uh, like the silver age of superheroes. It seems like that's a big influence on him. Yeah. Yeah, we, we really shared that, you know, because we were both big 60s fans of the 60s and 70s stuff. And, right. And I don't know if you've ever met Mike and Laura already. No. But they are truly the nicest, nicest people you'll ever meet. They're just, they're real decent human beings. They're just optimistic about life and how lucky they feel they are to be working in the business and drawing their heroes. Like, man, I can't say enough about those two people. Oh, that's great. And she's super talented too. I mean, her she's a she's a great colorist. Man, yeah. What a team. So then Teddy Christensen and I love this issue an awful lot too. I think the art in this is just fantastic. And it's got a, a real theme to it. And it's just, uh, it's a beautiful cover. It's the interiors are great. That uh, love story 
story in that is is just really nice. Were you pleased with that issue? Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that you liked it because Teddy was such a polar is such a polarizing artist, and like we did an issue with Damian Scott, and people came into my office and said, "Wow, this you know he's such a modern artist that really took balls to use him on this project," and you know. I really love the stuff they, you know, they said. And then the other 50% of the people came in and said, this isn't comics, this is crap. What are you publishing? You know, and I would kick them out of my office because they were wrong. But that's challenge of solo was to use artists who I really liked. And knowing that Teddy Christensen is just an incredible, incredible artist, but some people might not like it, which can't, it can't, it can't all be mainstream, you know? Mm-hmm. No, it was quiet, and it was it was had a art with a capital A feel to it that I, I think there's a whole segment of comic fans who probably didn't respond to that. And it's kind of amazing that he worked at DC, and that some of these guys worked at DC when they don't have styles that are are traditionally friendly. Yeah, yeah, and you know, the difficult thing was Solo was one artist pulling all the wait for a single issue. So if you didn't like, if you don't like Tim Sale, you're not going to buy that issue. But with Batman Black and White, I was able to like the very first issue. I asked Jim Lee to do the cover because he was incredibly popular and a great, great artist. But if you look in that issue, there's a Jose Munoz story in there right. that most kids had never heard of at that time because he was a European artist that I really worshipped. And so, yes, I kind of tricked people into buying the book and getting something that was good for them without them knowing it. Oh, that's awesome. And so then, then there was, so there was the Scott Hampton one and, and that's, that's an old friend of yours that you did. And were you, were you pleased with that, with uh, that issue? He mixed up his, his styles. That's the one where like you could see a, a root with most of the artists, like even though they, they differed the approach to it, but his are so different from story to story in that issue. Yeah, he's such a he's such a, uh, a multi-talented artist. He's got such variety to his stuff. He can draw any way he wants, which is such a rarity. He, some of those stories in there are my absolute favorites in the entire series. You know, he did, he, he did a story about a real EC Comics pastiche in there, and there's a story about a little boy who meets Batman, but it's really not Batman. It's a guy. Yeah, I love that one. It, oh my god, it it just brings tears to my eyes. I think it's it's just beautiful. And then we do the Damien Scott one, which I fully appreciate being being polarizing. And again, that's fascinating because where you have the one story where Brian Stelfreeze inks it and it it like changes it completely. And I mean, it seems so much more accessible on some levels. And I like that. And then I turn to the last story, though. And that double page spread on the bat is like the coolest thing in the world. So I think it's a totally, it's a strong issue that ought to be considered. And I, I bet it was probably the most polarizing issue that, well, maybe the last one, which we can, we right. can get to. Yeah, you know, it really was. People, people loved it and people hated it. And that's fine. That's cool. And then everybody loved Aragonis, right? I mean, that issue had yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was just a that was a no brainer. I just man, did that and, sell and, better? No, they all you know it's told about medium. You know, obviously the Tim Sales and the guys who were real popular at the time those sold really well. Yeah, I would think Sale and uh, Cook would be the ones that were probably just easy ones. Yeah, yeah. I you know the series sold fairly well, 
that wasn't a big success, but it was a big creative success. And that, that's okay. And then Brendan McCarthy is the probably most challenging one. I mean, like, that's like, wow, the DC readers probably were not ready for that. I mean, their brains probably exploded. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I was ready for that either. I, I, he's, <laughs> such a, he's such a mad genius, and I, and I wanted to publish a genius, you know, but it's not real accessible. But, man, it's, there's some creative stuff there. And that's one where it has a, I mean, like, it goes from page to page. There's, it's not just like four stories. It has a unity of insanity running throughout the entire thing. Yeah, you feel like you took just took acid and read a comic book. Um, yep. Yep, that's pretty much yeah. what it what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's like if you didn't know, just thinking about it, you could look at that issue and say, "Oh, well, that killed Solo. <laughs> that was that's the end of that." Mm. So anyway, I want to thank you for that series because it's such a great treat for people who really love comic art, especially because you got it in a in a way that you you don't often get it. So. Well, thank Thanks for indulging us in talking about that in the detail. That any other thoughts about Solo? No, I, I there is that weird wave of nostalgia, like oh, that's when comics were good, you know, from some people. And I'm real proud to have been a part of that, and I I appreciate that you liked it, and that people do remember it really well. It was an experiment. It was a little, maybe a little indulgent on my part, but hey, as long as it sold okay and and people liked it, then that's good enough for me. And the package and everything, when you say that that's, that's all you, it is one of the most memorable runs in terms of how it's designed and the visuals of cover to cover and back to back. It's just, it's such a well-conceived book, not okay. even talking about the content, but just the thematics of it, visual thematics of it. Cool, thank you. So Alex, you want to, yeah. I'm, I'm so, worn out for a few minutes talking <laughs> Talk right. about Wednesday Comics. <laughs> so Wednesday Comics, that was 2009. And I loved it. I read all 12 of them. And I just love how it's arranged like a Sunday Comics from the newspapers back when they were early adventure strips. So how did the Wednesday Comics come to be? Like many people, I'm, I am a fan of the old Sunday Comics, you know, the old comic strips in the newspaper. You know, they used to be so big. They were physically so large. And then over the years, they got smaller and smaller, unfortunately. But, you know, as a, as a fan of comics and comic strips, I really miss those days of, you know, I'd go back and collect stuff that was around in the 30s and 40s. And, you know, I was introduced to Crazy Cat, you know, George Herman's Crazy Cat, right. which was obviously before my time, before our time. But it's a different world, you know, it's a, we forget we, because we never knew that this is, this is one of the popular movies and, and television. You know, and then right up through all the, all the adventure strips, like you mentioned, um, you know, Terry and the Pirates was as big as any, any Star Trek movie, any Star Wars movie, any James Bond movie. It was just revered, and kids, kids across America loved that shit. And I was very good friends with an editor named Joey Cavalieri at, at DC, and, and Joey is a real knowledgeable guy, and he, he kept saying, you know, we should do something with the old strips, and I had the same exact idea, and, you know, so I put it together, and it was, it was really fun. I mean, it was a weird experiment. I wonder how it, how people look back on it because of the, these newspapers that were fake up. And then, you know, I liked it. I really, I really liked working with it and working with the people on it. I worked with you know some really great names again. But I sort of do wonder how people look back on it. 
Well, I mean, I love it. And I, I looked back on it the other day. Was it hard to pitch to DC at the time? Were they like, well, this, is, this sounds a little too avant-garde or, or was it a full green light from day one? Uh, no, it's definitely not a full green light. Uh, you know, I was just mentioning uh, the other day in an interview about how Paul Levitt was the big boss at DC would always give me a hard time. You know, I'd come into his office all, all excited about, hey, I want to do this new project. And he'd look at me like, no, we can't do that. It, that's mm-hmm. not going to sell. Uh, you know, research has shown that black and white comics don't sell or whatever. He, he, you know, he always right. pull it. And he's an incredibly intelligent guy. And he probably had reason, you know, had hardcore data to prove to back up what he was saying. But he always would say no to me. And I would always get upset and, and stalk out of his office, storm out of his office, and, and then go pitch it again another two months later. And I think I eventually wore him down on a lot of this stuff. I see. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I even got to the point where I did a big, you know, I pasted together comic books in the size and shape of Wednesday Comics to show him exactly what it would look like. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, I think he could tell from my passion that, yeah, okay, let's go ahead and do this. Right. Then you probably so, treat it, you so treat it right. Get out yeah. of my office. Then how did you select the artists and writers? Again, just as a fan, you know, uh, I always think the best thing to do as a, as an editor is to come up with projects that you would want that you would want to read that you would want to put on your bookshelf mm-hmm. um, so working with sure of course i wanted to work with paul pope and neil gaiman and eduardo riso again you know a few of them i asked a few of them who weren't able to like i wanted tim sale to do that the batman one on the cover uh-huh. but he wasn't able to do that i think he was doing something at marvel yeah but i was just as happy to get eduardo riso to do it in azarello right so Jim and I are going to talk about some of the individual ones. So Metamorpho, story by Neil Gaiman, art by Mike Allred. It's an interesting team up of those two talents, I thought. And it's about Metamorpho accompanying Simon Stagg to an expedition in Antarctica. So, you know, how was it receiving those pages from them? And did you give them ideas on layouts before getting the pages from them? Or was that just kind of they created it and sent it to you? You know, how was that? What was that process? It was, you know, the artists always worked with the writers and they de- they designed their pages. They came up with how they would approach the visuals. I never asked any of them to do them a certain way, a specific mm-hmm. way. That was all them, you know, and some people drew them because, again, they're really oversized pages. Some people drew them in separate panels and then they photoshopped all the panels together because the, the physical size of an art, a piece of art paper to draw it on would have been enormous. But sure enough, you know, Allred drew them full size and he showed me the original. They were like posters. They were incredibly big. Wow. Yeah. Paul Pope too, if you see those originals, they're, they're enormous. Right. But that was all, you know, again, Archie Goodwin, hire the best and let them do what they do. Don't tell, you know, Joe Kubert how to draw Sergeant Rock page. He knows what he's doing. Right, right, right. And then Demon Catwoman, the story by Walt Simonson, art by Brian Stelfries. And Catwoman is trying to steal an artifact from Jason Blood. And it was a Morgan Le Fay plot or a ploy. And then they actually sparked their own little romance between uh, Catwoman and Jason Blood. So none of that's supposed to be canon, right? These are just basically fun imaginary tales for this format, right? I think, you know, I honestly think all the stuff I did editorially mm-hmm. Batman Black and White Solo Lindsay Comics I think none of that is considered canon really because mm-hmm. it was just fun stuff you know right like artistic statements right 
Yeah, yeah. And we're talking DC. Does canon even is that even in a vocabulary any longer? <laughs> I, will, I will not answer that question. <laughs> I don't think anybody did anything that contradicted the basic tenets and canon of the characters. You know, Superman was Superman. He didn't. He wasn't smoking a cigarette on page two. You know. Right. Right. Sure. Sure. So then the Hawkman. I love that because there's an Alex Raymond vibe with Hawkman, obviously, and then the action and the illustration, it just had such a warrior approach to it, but the story and art was by Kyle Baker, and Kadar Hall fights off airplane hijackers, there's an alien invasion, he ends up on Dinosaur Island, Aquaman kind of helps him out at the end, he loses his wings, but what a fun story, because you have, you know, the orchestration of the birds, and planes and the hijackers and alien invasions and monster islands or dinosaur islands. What was it like seeing those pages? What Were some of these pages just more than you expected getting? Oh my God, Kyle's such a mad, like, you know, another one of these few mad geniuses that pages would come in and I'm like, what? what? Like, you know, he's like, oh, I want to do this whole, I want to do the whole, the whole story, like as 3D graphics, you know, I want it to look real dimensional. And I'm like, but Kyle, can't you just draw it with a pen? You know, I mean, like your old stuff. And no, no, I got this great idea. You know, Kyle is this weird mixture of, he's sort of a cross between like Jack Davis and Will Eisner, you know? Right. That's interesting. There's a real fun, fun nature to his stuff. And man, he goes down as one of the geniuses. Like, he's like Robert Crumb. He's just huh. wow. a different way than, than normal human beings. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, comparison. So then, Sergeant Rock, story by Adam Kubert and art by Joe Kubert, which is awesome because I, I was a big fan of the Green Beret strip. I've read every single one, I think. And Sergeant Rock is captured by Nazis and tortured, and he escapes the torture. You know, uh, this was uh, obviously toward the end of Joe Kubert's life, but, you know, were you a Joe Kubert fan with his earlier stuff? And, and how did it feel getting these pages and overseeing pages from him? It's Joe Kubert. Yeah, I just. Holy cow, you talk about Kirby and Toast. I mean, Joe Kubert's right there. Any comics artist, just worth his salt is just the biggest Joe Kubert fan. Mm-hmm. You know, and I knew Joe. I, you know, I got to know him because we worked together a little bit on that and about a few other projects. But And he ran that school out in New Jersey, out in Dover. And, I, you know, I'd go visit him to do some business and stuff. And I'd be like, I, I, you're going to think I'm a moron, but I'd be literally like, Holy shit, you're Joe Kubert. Oh my God, Joe Kubert, Joe Kubert. And he'd look at me like, Mark, take it easy. You know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, I just couldn't help it. It's Joe Kubert. So yeah, so I'm working with him and Andy on that, which really, I was a little nervous because what if you draw something you don't like? You're going to tell Joe Kubert to redraw something? It never happened, but yeah. Yeah, all those pages are great. I mean, he was great till the very end, right? I mean, he could do, he could, he still kept that skill through all those decades. So Superman, story by John Arcudi, art by Lee Bermejo. It's kind of an interesting story in that an alien kind of, they give him doubts about his connection with Earth. But those panels, Superman, even in his argument with Batman in the story, it just had such a heroic portrayal of Kal-El. You know, what would you feel of, of the sequence of those pages, the quality of that illustration when that was coming your way? You know, I'm such a big fan of Lee's work, Lee Bermejo. I think Arcudi is one of the great writers in comics. Mm-hmm. I wish he would be more mainstream stuff, you know, to play with those characters. Every time he does, it's really great. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and Lee Bermejo, geez, I hate the guy because he's this great-looking guy. He's this great 
artist. He's really smart. He's really talented. You know, it's like the guy's got everything going for him in life. And he's a good pal, but God, I love his work. Uh, I'm glad to see him as successful as he is. Yeah, that's awesome. So Batman, story by Brian Azzarello, art by Eduardo Risso. And uh, there's a, a murdered man's estate and a femme fatale. And it was interesting because although he catches the dead man's wife as the person who ended up killing him or being responsible for his death, Batman kisses her at the end right before she dies. So you can tell he likes the bad girl. That seems to be an interesting thing with Batman. What would you think of that? How does that hold up as a Batman story? I thought it was great. I thought it was a nice plus cover. To, you know, you got your you got your flagship character on the front cover, and Azarella's always a great writer, always a great writer. Right. And Risto, I'm such a big fan of. You know, I haven't looked at that. Shit. I haven't looked at those issues in quite a while. I should relook. I seem to remember getting the page, getting that page in. I may be misremembering. I apologize if I am, but it seems to me that when I saw it, he's kissing her and she dies. Right. But she's going to say something like she's going to, I forget, she's going to spill the beans about something. And he keeps like, he keeps kissing her and not allowing her to say what she was going to say. <laughs> Am I misremembering? Like, he doesn't actually kill her. Well, when I read it, it looked like she realized it was Bruce Wayne. And then she right. says, Bruce, question mark. And then he kisses her and there's like, you know, blood on their faces a little too. Yeah, like I think he, I think he like the way I read it, like he holds the kiss a little too long and yeah. she died. So she can't say out loud what she's thinking. Oh, that's funny. Well, because the cops were right there too. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. All right, Jim, you're, you talk about yeah. yours. Okay. I've just got a couple I want to want to talk about. The ones that I tend to, to love the most are the ones that it doesn't look like a comic book that's just drawn big, but instead looks like it's doing something like the old sheets did. Like it looks like a newspaper sheet. I thought that Sook just nailed it with his Hal Foster instead of Jack Kirby commandy. I that's one of my favorite out of everything that was that was done on the Wednesday comics. Oh yeah. And how how beautifully illustrated was that? I, I think it almost changed the notion of command I mean it's it's awfully hard to do that when Kirby creates it. But I think that Ryan Sook made such an impression on that character with that that it, it actually carries over. That's how people some people now have that in their head as as commandy, which is really yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just great. That was a standout. The other standout for me was I think that that Pope Strange Adventures is some of his best work ever, and he's got a lot of best work. But that's just talk about trippy. It that's like a whole different experience from I thought anything else. Yeah, absolutely agree. You know, I always thought those pages those pages reminded me of like San Francisco concert poster art. From yeah, the- yeah, totally. You know, like you could, I always wish somebody would have printed those on real nice paper, like as posters, but that would have been real cool. Yeah. Just the, just the strongest stuff. I, I crazy about those are the two that I, I out of, besides some of the things that uh, Alex mentioned, those are the two that really stand out for me that I could just look at over and over and seem like something that you would see on a comic strip newspaper page rather than anything else. I really like the Dave Bullock Dead man. I mean, I think he just a couple of those where he uses the entire page is just really, really crazy and fun. It looks like it looks like he's just having such a good time doing this. 
And, yeah, yeah. you know, really that's what I like on that one. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's got a real, it's got a real power to his stuff. I really wish that he was doing more comics these days. I, I thought he was a real force. He was a real force around that time. I agree. I loved his work. Yeah, he was real good friends with Darwin. They had worked together at Warner Brothers Animation. And you saw a little bit of Darwin in there. You saw a little bit of Jack Kirby. But Bullock's stuff is all Bullock. You know, he, man, I wish he would come back and do some comics. And the the other one I would say that I liked because it was really using the, the concept of that page was the Flash comics. I tended not to like the main superhero stories as much as some of the, the fringe stuff, but the, and that was just my, my taste, but the Flash one, because it broke it up in that Iris West and just the logo of Iris West and doing those two things on the same page, I just, I followed that with a lot of joy. And then like halfway through when they take away Iris and they put in Gorilla Grodd and suddenly it looks like a Tarzan strip. I just, that was exciting to me. I thought that was, who was that? That was Carl and Carl Kershaw. Yeah. And I forget. I'm my Brenda Fletcher or Brendan Fletcher. Brendan Fletcher. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I thought that was honestly, I thought they played with the possibilities of the format more than any other of those stories in, in Wednesday comics. Yeah, I that's that's why I'm including that with as good as Sook and and Pope was. I thought they were the ones that really got the concept. That's yeah, yeah, such fun stuff. All that. Oh, cool. uh, did you want to do a second series and just it it just wasn't going to come together? It was a lot to put together because as an editor, I was one of the rare editors who actually I did all my own, you know, production, you know, uh, putting the pages together and getting ready for the printer. I would do all that stuff myself and that's a lot of work. So I was sort of like, wow, when I was done, man, I was really done. But then like two, three years went by and you kind of forget the pain you've been put through or you put yourself through. You know, and I pitched it again and to the Dio and to Dan DiDio and he said, yeah, we'd like to do that again, uh, but we, sh- we want to do it as digital comics, you know, direct to digital. And I was like, that doesn't really make sense to me because the charm of Wednesday comics is that, is that you would hold this big piece of paper in your hand and really the size was the cool thing. But if it's digital, you could blow it up. You could blow any picture up, big or small, you know? So it's like that doesn't that, make any sense at all. I mean, that would be an interesting project to do in a Scott McCloud. Here's all the possibilities of doing it digital, but it's not, it violates the entire premise of what, what this was. I thought so. I thought so. So I kind of, I kind of backed off. I backed off of it. Oh. I, I started talking to a few people like Harlan Ellison. I asked Harlan to write, the, the great science fiction writer. I asked Harlan to, to write a, a story for me. And he said, man, I have the greatest idea. And uh, Walt Simonson was going to draw that. So I started, I started lining them up, but then it just kind of fell apart. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to, I'm going to have one last thing to talk about, which was the Before Watchmen series, starting with the Before Watchmen series. And I just wanted to ask you first, what was your feeling about it? I mean, about Watchmen and Alan Moore's wishes. Did you have any, any trouble getting your head around that, doing that project? I'll tread lightly here, but I, I disagreed with a lot of, although I respect Alan Moore, I disagree with a lot of, he worked on other creators' characters that the companies owned. 
why can't we work on the characters you created? There was a lot of backlash, you know, it was a kind of a funky time. It was, people were, again, very split right down the middle. Azarello and all these guys, you know, we're not going to just put anybody on this thing. But I was so proud of what Darwin did on Minutemen. Did you have input into the approach of those ones that you edited? You know, they would tell me what they were thinking of doing, and I'd say, oh, that sounds good. Or, like, I remember the Amanda Connor one, so Spectre, the bad guy was supposed to be Frank Sinatra. Like, literally, Frank Sinatra was supposed to be the bad guy. He was going to look like Sinatra, and, and legal said, don't even think about it, you know? And um, so I think it would have been a slightly better project if, if it could have been actually Frank Sinatra being a bad guy. I, I want to bring us to the end of D.C., and I don't know, Mark, what you want to say or how you want to say it in relation to that, except that this year your time with D.C. ended and to the incredible irritation of many, many of us. Do you want to, what do you want to say about it? Well, I, I, I appreciate you saying that. I, you know, yeah, it was kind of heartwarming to see the response that from everybody on Facebook and so many artists and writers and creators and fans and stuff that, you know, it made me feel like I didn't just waste 26 years of my life working for a company. But yeah, I mean, without getting into too much, corporate America stepped in, AT&T bought Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers owned DC Comics. You know, maybe they don't care that much about the creativity of this stuff. And, you know, they had to cut money and I made a good paycheck and they saw me as a, as a dollar amount, which is just, Okay, whatever. You know, uh, look, business is business, and I think that's something people forget. Comic books are a business, and DC is there to make money. Marvel is there to make money, and hopefully you can make some art along the way. So I don't, you know, look, I don't begrudge AT&T for, for their business decisions. I just, it was time for me to move on anyway. You know, I, I wanted to get back to doing my own artwork after all those years, and I've started doing that, and I've got some really cool projects for the for next year that I'm working on now. And I'm actually having a good time drawing for the first time in a long time. That's nice. It sounded like your job was a real time drain and exhaustion such that you didn't get to be the artist that you, you obviously, you know, are. Yeah, but I'm such a, you know, I had all those years, I had that insecurity about my own art with that. I sort of hid behind the job. Look, at the end of the day, it was a great job. Man, I did some fun stuff on that job. It was DC, I love DC Comics. I worked with some great people, you know, Karen Berger and Mike Carlin and all these great, great people in the office. You know, I get to work with Jim Lee every day. I mean, that's pretty cool. I'm not too crazy about one or two other people, but there's no need to get into that. It was a great, great job. And it, I think it's okay. To, it's a good thing to be part of a collective to make. I like to think maybe I made comics a little better from being a behind the scenes guy, but you're right. I did put my own artwork on the back burner and you know, maybe it's time to do some art again. Right. There you go. And I think a lot of people are excited about that too, about that aspect of it. Yeah. So besides comics, this is kind of like more of a side thing that we're mentioning at the the end of the interview is you worked on cards for a long time in the 1990s. You did a, a series of cards on, uh, on the history of the Negro Leagues for baseball. And then that was collected in a, in a book uh, for Abrams Publishing in 2007. You've done some Star Wars trading cards, Temple of Dooms cards. So, and you were able to exercise your illustration muscle on these. Can you tell us a little bit about the card career and your involvement in that? 
Sure. I'm a big baseball nut. I mean, it's really a, a passion of mine. And I did the, I did the um, Disney League cards for Eclipse way back when. I think it was like 1989, I think. And then they collected them as a book. Charlie Kochman at Abrams collected them. And trading cards are fun because, you know, being a comic book artist, an interior artist is really difficult. Man, you have to draw six panels on a page. It's a lot of work, as I'm finding out right now in my new freelance career. But, you know, you do a single image, you do a cover, or you do a trading card. You spend a day on it, you're in, you're out, you come up with a cool image, and you don't have to draw Spider-Man swinging across a city, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I always loved doing cards. They, they were really, really fun. And, I, you know, and on the baseball topic, I just finished my second baseball book. It's about the, the 100 greatest baseball players of all time. Oh, wow. Illustrated. Yeah. And I've been working for the last five years in my uh -huh. free time, but it'll be, I'm doing it as a kickstarting program for the beginning of next season, the 2020 season. So oh, nice. I hope you keep an eye out for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, make sure that it's mentioned on the uh, Facebook group page too. That's okay. exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark Chiarello, for joining Jim and I today on the Comic Book Historian Podcast. It was really exciting for us to talk about your involvement in comics history, various key figures in comic history that you worked with, as well as yourself. We really appreciate you joining us today and taking time out of your schedule to do this. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, I, I apologize for talking so much myself, but it was just great talking to you about all of this. No, I, I, I really thanks for having me. I, you guys did a great job. You made it really pretty easy for me to talk about myself. Which is oh, good. One last thing. Carmine Infantino, he was a editorial art director, then he was publisher. You know, do you feel like your art position and art directorial position was, were, were there any analogies going on there between uh, uh, your involvement with DC and his? Maybe in a minor way, I think, you know, Carmine was right out of um, the show Mad Men. Uh -huh. You know, it was the 60s and he was a cigar smoking guy who would tell people what to do. And he was incredibly creative. It was a different world. Uh, you know, I was, I like to think I was, you know, again, I, I, I like to hope people, you know, maybe think of me in the same sentence as Archie Goodwin, although I know that's incredibly egotistical to say. And if I learned something from Archie, then, then man, I'm happy with that. Yeah, maybe that's right. The Archie Goodwin of the 2000s. I can go with that for sure. Oh, thanks. <laughs>